Yes, hello, and welcome to another episode of Bio 2040, where we interview thought leaders in the field of biomedical research, drug discovery, and today I'm very excited to have with me on the show Oskari Vinko. He's a synthetic biologist and also now the co-founder of a startup called Unite Labs. And Unite Labs is building uh, robotic automation for life science laboratories. So, Oskari, welcome to Bio2040. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks, Oskari. Wonderful. So, very excited to have you on the show. Maybe give us a little bit of your background so people know who you are. Yeah, so I'm kind of, uh, uh, I have a complicated background. I started as a mathematician slash engineer, and I got very excited about uh, biology. So I started studying uh, molecular biology in the meanwhile, and then I got super excited about synthetic biology, which eventually brought me to Switzerland, to ETH Zurich, to do research. But I kind of realized that... Um, um, in the research, it's still far from the applications and, and it's hindered by the manual, tedious manual work that researchers are doing all the time in the laboratories. And, and I found this pain point and I had uh, founded two startups before. I think this was the perfect step for my next journey, uh, Unite Labs Auge here in Basel. Cool. Um, so so you, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you came up with the uh, idea and concept. Uh, tell us what Unite Labs is and how you how you kind of came up came up with that, that idea. So I was working uh, in the research laboratories and I I was pipetting a lot of liquids, you know, from tube to another, putting the tube to a machine, pressing buttons, trying to remember what kind of settings they were. Then I was waiting for ten, fifteen, sometimes forty minutes and uh, repeating this kind of process all over and over again. And uh, I saw also uh, PhD students, uh, postdocs in the academic labs doing the same thing from day to another. And uh, I, was, I was thinking that there has to be another way. And when I then started uh, looking into more and more uh, into existing lab automation solutions, it was surprisingly hard. Uh, difficult to use for people who don't have experience in robotics and programming. And also, it seems like the automation was rather primitive if we compare to what is going on in, in automotive industry, uh, food production. And if you look at self-driving cars and, and mobile phones, this technology is, is far ahead compared to life science laboratories. So the whole idea of Unite Labs is to bring existing technologies from uh, decision-making, uh, autonomous platforms, uh, robotic, uh, robotics in general, uh, and computer vision, machine learning, that we apply this kind of rather modern technologies into the life science automation field to make it more easy to use, more powerful, uh, and most importantly, uh, decrease the threshold for automation because uh, usually it takes uh, a lot of overhead time to uh, design an automation process. And that's essentially the thing that keeps this from becoming uh, mainstream in the life science research. Mm. So, so you're essentially the, the people who are working in biology, I mean, they have had, spent years and years researching and understanding uh, uh, pathways and how cells work and DNA and all that, but they don't necessarily have a background in uh, engineering, robotics, software engineering. 
And so you're giving them, is it correct to say you're giving them a solution that you have to be, are you targeting people that are sort of not that technical and make it really like almost kind of plug and play for them to automate an existing lab process? Is that? Yeah, pretty perfect? much, pretty much. So, so, you know, these people have the expertise in biology. And if you look at, uh, talk to many of these biologists, they, uh, they are in, in, uh, the, when we talk about, um, uh, learning programming at, at university, they are always or very often in the group that didn't really get to point and found it just uh, frustrating. And they feel extremely uncomfortable if they have to suddenly start scripting some some uh, workflows or programming robots that's just mm. not within the reach of, let's say, 90% of the people who work in the laboratories. Mm. Mm. Interesting. And are you targeting customers now uh, – most of the people in academia, or are you also speaking with uh, people in biotech or even all the way up to pharma? I would imagine that people in pharma have spent quite a bit of money on automating some of these things. So what's kind of the sweet spot of where your solution can, can make the most dif- the biggest difference? Mm. So we start actually from the pharma. Uh, so we uh, target exactly to the drug discovery processes where automation is already employed, but it's usually very cumbersome and uh, they are very, very familiar with the pain that comes with the current automation solutions. So this is an easy easy starting point, targeting the pioneers in the automation of drug discovery uh, and and research. Got it. Got it. And how does your service um, sort of compare to something like transcriptic? When would I use unite labs over something like transcriptic so uh, there are a couple reasons transcriptic is doing really really great work um i hope the platform will be much more popular and and even more advanced than it is now they have a excellent concept of trying to uh, do research in the cloud having your own completely automated laboratory that you can just uh, control remotely and it's shared with other people. However, uh, one thing is that many, uh, when we work with specific cell lines, you have to have very specific kind of uh, conditions and they might not uh, survive the transportation over to Atlantic Sea on, on, on another continent to be able to operate them. Then usually these uh, cell lines might be uh, one of the greatest assets of, of the company and they just simply don't want to ship them out of their, their own facilities. And mm. then there's a surprisingly big part uh, of having control and being able to uh, monitor in real time and intervene with the autom- automation process. Transcriptic, really, they do uh, deterministic, predefined workflows, uh, mm. uh, which basically you can't intervene with the work uh, when it's being executed. And for example, you can't make decision based on a measurement. So if you have 10,000 or 100 million cells, you should be treating them differently. If you don't have this information beforehand, you can't run it on transcriptic. Mm, mm. Okay, so your uh, solution is sort of much more uh, flexible, adaptable. I can change things uh, as I go and I see what's happening with my experiments. I can just quickly change it versus having to wait uh, for results and have to send it back to, to transcriptic and so forth. So yeah, um, that, that makes a lot of sense. Very cool. Can you walk us through maybe, uh, I'm just curious, like about like an actual project, like, you know, maybe uh, like 
the way they were doing it before and then and then they employed your solution which parts did they automate what was the uh kind of maybe what how much time did they gain did that already lead to some interesting discovery like some case study maybe that you, you guys already had mm-hmm. so we are working one of our pilot customers is uh idorcia uh it's a new pharmaceutical company here in basel that was spun off from actelion when it was uh, acquired by Johnson & Johnson last uh, June. So um, we have been working with their high-throughput screening uh, unit. And our what we are automating there is, is uh, the compound analytics. So mm. you have a, a huge library of chemicals that you want to test on, on your disease model or, or the cells of interest. But first, you really need to verify the quality of these chemicals because they have, might have been stored for quite long time periods in, in a freezer, for example. Uh, so what we do, we uh, take, uh, we have an automation system where the user inserts the plates and, and uh, basically initiates the, the run. Uh, it doesn't really require any other information than how many plates did you put in. And then our robotic system takes uh, this uh, plate. So it usually has 96 different chemicals uh, on it. And mm-hmm. uh, it scans the barcode. And this mm-hmm. barcode will uh, be sent to the laboratory information management system where we get a response of what kind of steps, what kind of analysis do we perform on this specific sample. And then our robot basically follows the instructions. So we have a high-pressure liquid chromatography where uh, where we can separate the different components and then we can quantify the components on a mass spectrometry. Um, and our automation system basically operates these devices according to the instructions we got from the information management system. And uh, it produces data and this data is then uploaded back to the information management system. Uh, and then uh, sometimes we throw the plate away and take the next one, or we might bring it back to the user if, if that was something that they want to save for further use. So that's basically uh, the setup of this first first case. Here, we what is special about this is that we do uh, direct integration of, of also the data going in the background and all works from your mobile phone that you can remotely uh, set up the run, you can add samples, uh, you can see how long it takes, you get notifications, something is going wrong mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. it doesn't require any installation. So also you can send the link to your friend uh, within the same company and they will be able to access and, and see when their results are up there. Uh, mm. So this is very, very basic workflow, but here we mm-hmm. try to demonstrate the new technologies that we have been working on uh, to point out how easy it could be uh, to automate this kind of processes. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Um, you mentioned to me before I call that you uh, now just sort of presented that at a at a conference in in California, and we also talked about the uh, interoperability standards uh, that uh, can be a bottleneck when different devices speak different uh, languages. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's the current state of the industry and what you guys, uh, together with others, are hoping to uh, put together so that we can uh, sort of 
so that these devices, I guess, can talk to each other more, more effectively. Of course. Uh, so basically the current situation is that each vendor, they have their own interface, their own uh, way of interacting with the device. So if you have a... Um, uh, centrifuge, for example, when you get it from one provider, it requires some active X components that uh, uh, that provide the interface uh, to interact with the centrifuge, and another one might uh, take some uh, uh, characters via serial port that will indicate the next operations, and and these kind of small nitty-gritty interfaces that are always different depending on which vendor, which device you're using. And it makes the life of a scientist or automation integrator extremely hard uh, and, mm. and very tedious. It's not necessarily hard. It's just a lot of mm. work that doesn't really contribute to anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's very, very scattered. Uh, and SILA standard in lab automation is a, a non-profit consortium that is trying to address these difficulties. And uh, we have been working with SILA consortium to develop a new standard for, for universal communication between instruments. There's already one, SILA mm-hmm. one. Uh, mm-hmm. but it didn't really work. It didn't really uh, match the expectations that the users had. So they had some successful projects, but uh, we are now building on top of the lessons learned, and we think that the new standard will be uh, really remarkable even if we look at the IoT space in general. It's basically an IoT standards that takes account the needs of laboratory instruments and the kind of data that we want to move uh, from instrument to another and how they work. So, mm-hmm. so cool. the basic basic improvement here is that uh, it's completely plug and play. Uh, when you power on your device, it will simply broadcast where is he and what kind of capabilities does he provide and, and uh, the other devices will be able to uh, listen to this. And you don't have to specify IP address or, or you don't even have to connect cables because we also work with Wi-Fi and so on. And this is basically the, one of the very good features that enable very easy, easy use of these instruments. But then we work also uh, for new kind of de- definition. How does how is a capability defined? And we try to give the vendors as much power as possible, so they can literally anything that they can think of, they can put into this format, and it will work with any other device. And it's peer to peer. So mm. if you have uh, now a liquid handler, and you have a barcode reader. Uh, the bar, uh, barcode reader reads the ID on your sample and the, the liquid, liquid uh, handler can then uh, ask for this information, send it to LIMS and get back a protocol that needs to be executed for exactly the sample. And the scientist mm. doesn't have to do anything because the data and the communication between all the components here is so seamlessly integrated. Mm. And this is what we have been Very doing cool. before. Mm, that, that sounds very cool. So, so you're going to create like a, it sounds on one hand a little bit like Bluetooth, the devices can just like automatically connect like magic, 
which, which sounds uh, pretty yeah. cool. At the same time, uh, it looks like what I'm getting, uh, if I get this correctly, is that there'll be an opportunity to, to script it, but in a very, very simple way, right? Where I can say, well, the compound has these and these properties, this, uh, and it's coming from this device, and it's going now, it's going to the next device, it'll, it'll have to do X, but if it has these other properties, let's do Y, right? And so you can kind of branch and then just whatever at the end, I like the things like plug and play or, or fire and forget, but right? you, you put it in and then it just goes through a bunch of different compounds, let's say, and just always does the right thing. So that, that looks like a really powerful um, solution. Mm. So Sela itself uh, is an enabler, but it doesn't really do this for you. That's actually what our startup Unite Labs is doing. So we try to mm-hmm. dumb down the automation uh, or protocol design process uh, so much that anybody can just, you know, if you can draw arrows from box to another, you can basically <laughs> design the protocol yourself. Uh, yeah. It doesn't have to be as hard as it is today. And, and uh, we think that if we don't have incredibly complex workflows, uh, we can really make mm-hmm. it very simple to design them yourself in very short amount of time. Yeah, yeah very cool. Um, so I, I just had uh, um, Lenny Teitelman from Protocols.io uh, on the show a couple ah, weeks cool. ago. And so I, I, I see how uh, your efforts and, and his efforts, uh, their efforts could kind of at some point plug together in an interesting way where, where I, I, maybe I, I can share a Unite Lab protocol as part of my Protocols.io protocol or something where uh, scientists, is, is that something that could work? As long, I'm assuming I need to have the same devices mm. or something for that to work, but, but how could that work together or would that work together? So that's actually a very interesting point you are bringing up here. So uh, if we look at Transcriptic, they have designed their own uh, protocol language that is both human and machine readable. And uh, we are also looking into what could be the best solution for our platform so that when the user designs the protocol, what will be the language behind so that humans and machines could in- understand it. Uh, and mm-hmm. when when if we find such a format that really describes not only the steps that will be done, but also the decisions that will be made uh, based on measurement, which uh, all the protocol uh, the transcriptic is using doesn't really support yet. So if, mm-hmm. if there would be this kind of uh, universal uh, experiment description language, uh, this would be ideal also for sharing the protocols and protocols IO and being able to get started extremely quickly, even on automation platforms. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, because one of the things I've been hearing from people as a bottleneck is sort of, you know, getting your experiments set up correctly in, in, the, in the first place, right? That can be something that can take three months or more just to, to understand the temperature, the microscope setting, how to dye your cells and things like that. And I'm assuming the configuration work uh, that I have to do when I'm automating some of these steps could also take me a while until I get it right. And so if your, if your solution is there... And, and somebody else has done it using some of the tools you provide. Now, maybe suddenly I can, I can, I can in an ideal world, right? I, I could think of an experiment and then basically uh, find the right protocol and protocol IO, download it and have it run on, um, well, all the machinery that I have, including maybe the Unite Lab 
uh, robotics uh, that, that I have in my lab and it would just start, right? That, that would be like kind of magic. Yeah, right? that would be that would be actually really cool. That would be really cool. Of course, one would have to validate the results of the protocol before actually implementing it with, with the actual samples that you want to work on because, you know, the reagents might be a bit different. The centrifuge might now be different version or different configuration and it might have different results. But uh, in, in the research group I was working in at ETH Zurich, we had a PhD student who was exactly trying to create a portable format for laboratory protocols so that you could take the same protocol, put it to a different device, and it will be able to execute it there with very, very minimal intervention. Um, but it's, it's surprisingly tricky. It's surprisingly tricky. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, we should we should look at that uh, uh, deeper. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to learn more from that as well. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and, and talk about general. You know, by 2040, we're always trying to uncover uh, bottlenecks as well as seeing how entrepreneurs or scientists can come together and, and create some solutions. So, you know, now you're speaking with clients. Obviously, you've identified a big bottleneck, which is, is the automation mm-hmm. uh, step that is lacking. Now you're working on it, which I think is amazing. What other bottlenecks are you seeing? What 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 is preventing people from researching faster, from finding cures in your mind? So, one thing is definitely uh, this kind of reinventing the wheel. So, these pharma companies that we are in talks with, they have a lot of different projects for every successful drug, uh, and mm. they usually their projects just die. They pull out the plug at some point. And uh, um, one quite obvious thing is that a lot of information there uh, will be lost and, and not utilized mm. properly. Same goes for for academic publications. You know, you never pub, uh, make your failures uh, public because you mm. don't really want to spend time on on documenting your failures that just feels like Mm -hmm. a hindering thing but if we think about the Mm -hmm. compound effects of people doing something along those lines we could save a lot of experiments that have already been done and and uh, Mm -hmm. that's that's one thing um uh, then we have been looking mostly the bottlenecks in terms of automation uh, and, and what what prevents automation for, from uh, becoming more prevalent. So one is, of course, you know, it's not like we are replacing researchers and humans. And sometimes uh, uh, or quite often the experience of that person and the decision-making uh, uh, part is is uh, very very necessary, and when that is involved uh, during the protocol, it gets very hard to automate um, uh, from end to end, so to say. But why not? Why not build a tool that you know people in the laboratories can use every day and everywhere? They can. It's an automation tool that they could perhaps move move from room to another depending on where is that routineous task that you need to do. And you could perhaps interact directly uh, during the workflow. You know, it will send you a message. Hey, now you have to check out the sample. I'm not sure what to do with it. Should it go to A or should it go mm-hmm. to B? Uh, and you can mm-hmm. still automate most of the work. Uh, but the fact that this kind of decision-making process is... Uh, 
still part of the protocol doesn't mean we can't automate part of it. It would be a tool mm. that the scientists use. Uh, mm -hmm. But so like a kind of a, a smart assistant in a way that, that it just makes me aware of like the most important decisions that I have to make. And I can kind of make sure by more of the time that the devices are there being used effectively kind of, or yeah, the point is, is uh, you usually know the process already and you know, this is a hard thing. Uh, sometimes if we talk about, for example, protein crystallization, it seems to be sometimes like black magic, but some people just have more intuition mm -hmm. to it than others. And mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. this kind of things where you still want to sample a large amount of different conditions to find the crystallization, but you still have to decide the conditions and see what happens and maybe change them on the fly. This could be something mm -hmm. that... Uh, where this kind of collaborative robotics could could come of uh, of use. So, so where where if I get this correct or an idea I was having now, so you'd you'd have uh, because some people have more intuition than others, you'd start almost crowdsourcing that and be like, well, people that have successfully uh, you know ran this experiment use these kind of conditions, and then somebody who's maybe doing such an experiment for the first time would benefit from a suggestion like that the, there would be like a, again, like an assistant or something to say, Hey, would you want to try out these kind of conditions? Is, is that along the lines you were thinking? Uh, well, that's, that's a bit different idea. I find that also very interesting to kind of um, have a shared pool of knowledge that just helps you out. If you're doing something similar that has been done already, of course, that would be, that would be a really cool idea. Uh, But uh, here, usually the scientists still, you know, they define how it goes, uh, but they just know that, okay, this is what the robot does, this is what the human does, and this is how, how they work mm. together. Um, yeah. But another point I want to bring up is, is uh, also, mm -hmm. I think, one thing that is, is largely lacking is, is uh, collaboration and networking between uh, people in the industry and academia. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. it's really surprising to see how how little initiative um, there often are in, in very well performing re research groups to actually bring uh, the value further than the publication. Okay. From my perspective, the most exciting part is 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 not just the research. It's about realizing, you know, being there all the life cycle from, from thinking about an interesting question to making a, a discovery after a long period of research and then applying the results, uh, trying to make an impact in environment or technology or community uh, via mm -hmm. those results. And too rarely uh, I can see this drive. You know, once you have published, other people hmm. will take care of it. And this is frustrating hmm. me. Uh, and uh, one has to have a tremendous amount of initiative to have the courage to start driving uh, that thing forward beyond what the professor is interested in. Uh, find the people hmm. in, uh, in industry who do similar things and kind of this needs-driven research. So... People mm -hmm. do it out of curiosity, but what if you actually go out there and see what how things are done right now and then start your PhD mm -hmm. and the goal of it is mm. to fix this problem, not just make a publication. Mm. Why doesn't this happen more often? Yeah. That is very interesting, Oscar. We've uh, you know I've been interviewing people for, for a couple months now and 
you're mentioning something I've heard a lot, mm. which is exactly this, this, uh, it seems to be really, I'm, I'm trying to start seeing a, a, a really a, a kind of consensus around right. that where it, it's the rare, it's the rare person that has both the um, sort of scientific mind that wants to do the research, wants to be in the lab mm. every day. It's a different skill set to then go out and reach out, you know, to, to pharma and, and talk about what they're doing and what they need. And it becomes a bit more of a business development, sales, strategy, uh, learning, being more with people than it is just with, with yourselves and your That's life. That's true. Right? So, uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it's very interesting you mentioned that. And, it, and, it, and it's sort of one of the things I am looking at also is, is you, know, you know, accelerating biomedical research as a whole, but then specifically also I've been looking at, at translating research from academia into um, business and actually you know at the end we want to benefit patients right mm. that's the whole point mm. we're, we're sort of doing that so if we just publish a paper and then uh nothing happens right it's in a way it's almost kind of wasted right so yeah maybe someday someone will pick it up and find us through uh chance or they're googling something and they come across us but but what's the uh, i don't know i'm just I'm, i guess i'm just rambling on here mm. about the same mm. point it's, it's a different level of impact the when the people who have been doing the work mm. themselves will be involved in making realizing the in, impact of it i think one thing how this could be uh, facilitated is to have simply more collaboration in, in research. You know, too often uh, what I've seen is that people have their own project, they are own, themselves responsible for it, and there's sometimes some collaboration. But why aren't research mm. groups more oriented towards the same goal and people working with each other to get there instead of everybody working on their own project and sometimes asking advice from each other why don't they have common goals mm -hmm. and why don't they mix more skills so that you know they would have different kind of people for example what uh, what do you have been doing uh, this kind of uh, market research where you try to figure out what are the problems you know why don't you have these people in the research groups who's purpose is to kind of map that what makes sense what's the problem and how could we have an impact mm -hmm. yeah no definitely i am thinking of, of you know as i'm thinking of how to grow by 2040 and what its impact could be definitely i'm thinking a lot about how do i take someone like you you know who has a lot of skills has seen a lot of problems and then connect you maybe uh um, you know maybe before you've started in that lab, so maybe a year or two years ago and then you you um because you've already done that now, but, but somebody who's interested and has a skill set has to drive. But then I bring you together with, uh, you know, maybe some of our listeners are in pharma. Uh, some of the listeners are doctors uh, and, and some of the people are other scientists with, as you mentioned, different mm. skill sets. And then we can create a bit of a, a community around uh, and, and, and explore what the real problems are and try to really, what I'm really, I think looking at is like, what are the biggest problems, right? Like it's, it's nice if you, do a very, very niche experiment that finds out something you find interesting. But I'm really interested in, hey, we're, you know, there's cancer out there. There's diabetes out there. What needs to happen uh, so that we can cure those? And so what I'm hearing is, is you're kind of confirming that thesis of we need more cross-disciplinary collaboration and, and sort of, do you have a sense of why this is not happening? Why these collaborations 
aren't naturally taking place. I mean, I'm, 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 there are some collaborations, right? Sometimes pharma will donate a lot of money to a university and be like, hey, we have an mm. interest in this area, but you're saying it could happen mm. a lot more. Do you have a sense of why that's I, I think it's, it's uh, the pressure of reputation, you know. Uh, the people who do the actual research are typically the PhDs in at least in academia, right? Uh, and their goal there is to attain as high a reputation as possible. And sometimes that's also the goal of the professor that it's simply a requirement. You have to have for first author papers. Now, if you have two groups mm -hmm. to do similar things, but from a different perspective, that would be ideal for collaboration. And both these groups mm -hmm. have a policy for the, the, the research group members that you have to get for first author papers. So what sense does it make now for these people to collaborate with each other? Because if you collaborate mm -hmm. on your research, it doesn't count on your mm -hmm. reputation meter. It doesn't count mm -hmm. on your quota for, for the papers. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that is very discouraging. You know, that maybe drives for this individualistic value that then you get people with, with really amazing first author papers sometimes. But when we talk about larger numbers mm -hmm. and the total impact, I think it's losing a lot. And so well, I think I think this collaboration is not incentivized and people are more afraid of mm -hmm. telling too much to the people who work in the same field and trying to build their egos and reputation against them than mm -hmm. actually combine the forces. Mm -hmm. They are really strong characters in academia, surprisingly often. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one part of the problem. Yeah, I love how you you because you've talked to a lot of people, but you've sort of nailed one thing I hadn't heard in this specific way before, which is is the the professor's requirement on on being X number of first mm. author papers. Right, that seems like a very specific request, and if it's if it's formulated the way you just described, I I, I totally see how that's a one hundred percent uh disincentivizing any collaboration yeah. right because by definition only one person be the the first author on, on a paper exactly. right and so i've seen people trying i've seen people trying to do okay well we'll randomize the names of the collaboration so and they'll try mm. to use that and um so but but yeah i mean it, it comes all down back to incentives and and how do people hire and how do you right how do you keep your grants and how do you keep how do you get tenure and how do you get just to the next stage in your, in your academic life. And so everything is there. And so even a professor changing that requirement could suddenly lead to interesting collaborations. Right. so, uh, it, it, in a way it's almost crazy to think about that something that's in my mind, quite yeah. kind of small is leading to this behavior where we're like probably wasting a lot of research or we're researching stuff that isn't really what could bring things. Forward. I absolutely think so. This is a classical game theory problem where if you uh, basically exploit the other person, you are better off. But if you cooperate, the total utility is much higher. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a conversation with a game theorist actually about this. We're trying to model. Is it, is a, is it a prisoner's dilemma problem or is it more like a stag hunt where we're both uh, better off if we collaborate, but one person is still slightly better off if they exploit? So very interesting discussion. Uh, that, that 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 I should probably do a podcast just on just kind of on these, on these yeah, aspects. But uh, very cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's really interesting. I, I'm really uh, 
this is so interesting. And if we can change something in that area, either change, you know, that's where I like the protocols at IO approach where I think it'll take a while, but if we can create alternative reputation systems, right? Like, I mean, I think of GitHub that is now the de facto standard. You know, if you're in software engineering trying to get a job there, your GitHub profile is going to be part of almost every application you're going to make. And you're going to, people are going to look at how many uh, open source projects mm-hmm. you contributed to, how or have you created, how many stars and forks and mm-hmm. all that have you had. And, and then suddenly it becomes part of your resume. And, and, and now with something like Protocols.io, maybe we can start creating alternative uh, proof points for building reputation, right? So if I have a Protocols, maybe I've never published, but I have this protocol, Protocols.io, that a hundred other scientists, a thousand other scientists have used and confirmed that it works. And it's becoming like a really foundational mm-hmm. protocol in a specific area. Suddenly I can use that when I'm applying for a job and say, Hey, look at this, you know? Uh, and exactly. Can- that would be also the incentive for people to actually start sharing. I mean, this is of course a chicken and egg mm-hmm. problem. Why would you share it to a community without mm-hmm. members? And why would you be a member of a yeah, community yeah. where nobody shares? But but, mm-hmm, but I, yeah, I find it really amazing how uh, Stack Overflow or GitHub have become one of the ways how uh, headhunting companies uh, find their talent and how how uh, much weight uh, companies also put on this because it really tells it really tells how much uh, what kind of expertise you have how much initiative you do take uh, on helping others or how curious you are about interesting questions in that field why would not that same approach apply to biology you know if i code something and i have a problem i just find the answer on stack overflow almost every every single time mm-hmm. now if mm. something like this would be available also for biology and in terms of protocols and debugging protocols and and so on, that mm. would be that would be absolutely fantastic. There is something like this going on, but it hasn't reached even nearly similar order of magnitudes than in in programming fields. Yeah, I think one of the things there might be, and correct me if you have a different opinion, but the amount of money and time that goes into creating a result in biology is, is so much more higher than it is in, in computer science, right? Where almost anyone with a laptop can start contributing. In biology, I might spend two years to create a result. So there's a bit more. I can, I can see the reluctance to share something early before I've made my publication, before I've been paid in the currency I've been trying to acquire, right? which is typically going to be a publication in, in a high-impact journal. Um I think part of the problem is around that. I'm not sure it's the, the full the full picture of why biology. Yeah, that's true. But if you also look at, at uh, the context at at which developers or uh, biologists work, if if a developer is usually part of a software development team where where they share resources and have different kind of responsibilities by default, and in academic research you are basically on your own and you have to protect your work so because it might go into hands where they get it faster done than you do and this is a serious concern and sometimes uh, um, uh, uh, useless concern in in that sense that uh, we lose a lot if we just try to protect everything but you're absolutely right it takes a lot more time to produce a result in biology. And and also it takes a lot more time to debug uh, a mistake in biology. Uh, mm-hmm. So perhaps also mm-hmm. the magnitude of the problem and the, 
the work basically impacts here. But yeah, but but the flips and the interesting flip side of it though is that if you release something. Uh, are you, the more you release, the more you're inviting others to mm-hmm. look at your things. And, and again, this collaboration just talked about. So I had uh, Rachel Harding on the show as well. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she has this uh, lap scribbles mm-hmm. uh, blog where she uh, you know keeps uh, just two things. One, she has an open lab notebook policy where she continuously shares uh, almost, I mean, almost every, I don't know if it's daily or every couple of days she shares sort of what she's found, her daily experiments, and she uploads it on a software uh, platform called Zenodo. Uh, so this is a very technical kind of description with all the data and all the protocol that she did. And then she has her blog where she sort of summarizes it a bit more for, mm-hmm. for lay people, just like with a big picture of what happened. And for her, it has, it has just led to so many interesting collaborations, right? People oh, really? reached out. Uh, uh, you know, people from bioinformatics have reached out and say, Hey, I looked at your data and I found this mm-hmm. thing in the data. And they, before they had to even get on a call and say, Hey, should we collaborate? The person just took the data, did something interesting with it and sent it back. Or like, how amazing is that? Right. So while she was sleeping, yeah. the person found something, uh, and sent it the next morning, she had something in her inbox. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, as well as mentors have reached out, patient groups have started reaching out because she's researching this, this, uh, hunting thing, mm-hmm. uh, disease. So, uh, what I'm trying to say here is, is, yeah, there is a big sort of initial, you almost need, uh, you know, t- take an analogy from chemistry, you need a, uh, activation energy, right? But, but once you have surpassed activation energy, I'm going to share some stuff. You might be surprised as to what the crowd or the cloud or whatever the community of researchers might do with your things. And yeah, sometimes some people might just use it for their own research, but many people might come back and say, Hey, I looked at your stuff and here, here's an area where I think you should dig deeper or can we collaborate on this? Uh, and then suddenly you're, you might actually solve a lot of these issues. You say, okay, yeah, it takes so much time to debug something. Well, if I share it with the crowd, maybe somebody else debugs it mm-hmm. for me. Right? Uh, and, and so, so I think that's a really interesting approach. And I, th- and I think people that are sharing it, uh, or long term, I think they're going to just generate massively more results than the people that keep everything. I, I really think so. Uh, it, it depends a bit on the setup on on the field and and if if uh, if there are people who exploit it or also get encouraged by this attitude. Yeah. But we are also trying to apply this at Unite Labs in in the sense that we created mm-hmm. a software called Sila Two Browser. That is a, a, a software that runs on your your browser on any device, basically, and it will discover all the devices that conform to the Sila standard, and it will uh, generate a user interface for you, no matter what device. Even if we have never seen the device before, the software will be able to show you the user interface and let you command from your mobile phone, from your tablet, from your desktop machine. Doesn't matter. You'll be able to command your device from your phone and this is all open source we are we we are making this uh, freely available for people to debug how it works mm. to try out what sila sila 2 can can do for you and and we think this might be um might be uh, very valuable uh, for people even though it's rather basic tool still uh, and, and time will show. Yeah. Time will show. I, I hope that uh, it's a good choice to open source, and, and we get some traction, and we get to meet cool people because of that. Very cool. Very cool. I certainly hope so. So we're almost at the end here. I, I, I do want to ask the question mm-hmm. I ask everyone at the end, which is a little bit uh, uh, looking into the future. 
uh, are just, you know, you see a lot of uh, research, a lot of projects is there um, anything can be totally can be related to what we just talked about? Can be totally unrelated. Is there anything that has particularly captured your attention uh, from a, it's a it's a research, it's a technology, a product, uh, a person, maybe or some, something that uh, you've you've been learning more about, or want to learn more about, and think would be interesting for our listeners to dig So I think about. the answer here, on my side, is really simple. I think synthetic biology is still the uh, technology or or the field that in my eyes, that has the greatest future potential of basically everything I know. Mm. It just, there's a mm. lot of, uh, a lot of development will have to happen in terms of tools, in ways of working, in collaboration, and especially in uh, regulation and law, what can be done and what should not be done. Mm. I think that's the end, a discipline where we can, uh, our purpose is to learn how to engineer biology. How can we design and understand DNA on such level that we could someday reach a uh, uh, predictable outcomes and it would become a real engineering discipline of course biology is very chaotic and it still takes a lot of time and understanding to get there but i think there is such vast potential in being able to understand uh, how to engineer uh, biology and build small machines that do exactly what you want and replicate themselves so no manufacturing costs at, at all and they are super tiny scale mm. and they can be very intelligent sometimes so it's it's really surprising you know just think about it if somebody uh, claps his hands in front of your eyes your eyes will close by by reflex that has to be somehow somehow encoded in your DNA because every single infant does mm. this. How do you do that? We don't know. Mm. But if you know how to do that, you could do really incredible things. Wow. That's exciting. I, I think this is a great uh, uh, ending note here, the excitement for synthetic biology. I definitely uh, want to learn uh, much more about it, and I guess we could have a, mm. whole, a whole other podcast just uh, just talking about that. Uh, so uh, in the interest of time, let, let's close it here and let's uh, just say, uh, where can people um, find your company? Where can they uh, follow you online, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter? What's sort of the best way for people to um, get in touch or learn more about? Uh, what so our are? company can be found. Uh, we have a website, uh, unitelabs.ch. Uh, that's where you can find what we are doing. Uh, the best way to get in contact with me is I, I use Twitter, Oscar Vinko uh, is my handle. And um, also, uh, if you want to talk more about lab automation, uh, let's connect on LinkedIn. I'll be there as well. Very cool. Oscar, it was, it was a real pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I'll be uh, writing down notes and, 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 and some of the things we talked about for, for people that have been listening uh, and make sure we link to to, the, to your company as well as to your Twitter. And yeah, just thanks again yeah, so thanks much. For being on it the was show. my pleasure. Thank you.